Before we begin this episode, I would greatly recommend that you would check out Bible Gateway, which is a great website, and read from the King James Version as we go through these verses and uh, pay close attention to these doctrines that we're going to study today, because it is always excellent to read the Word of God alongside someone expounding upon the Word of God, and not just to take their opinion for it. I would greatly recommend that, and I would go as far to say that you shouldn't even listen to this episode if you don't have a a Bible open and you're not reading from it, because again, it doesn't profit you anything to just take my opinion or take my word for it because I'm untrustworthy, but God is not a man that he should lie, and you should listen to what he has to say in his word. So just some food for thought and a wonderful recommendation that I would give to you before we begin. This episode is episode four in this Grace and Truth series. This is the follow-up episode to episode three, which was entitled True Salvation Grace. This is True Salvation Truth. And in today's episode, we will be talking about repentance as well as going over what other people say about repentance and is repentance necessary for salvation and in addition to that we'll that that'll be the first part of this episode and in addition to that in the second half we will talk about what is involved with repentance what is involved in salvation and what many other people have said about salvation that is completely antithetical to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ So it will be my pleasure to share the Word of God with you, uh, to discuss these doctrines, especially the doctrine of repentance, because it is without question the most uh, disfigured, misrepresented, falsified, uh, just reeks of deception. So many people have attempted to, in their naturalness, of course, because they lack of the Holy Spirit, They have attempted to reconcile their worldly thinking with the godly doctrine of repentance. And so many people have been led on the broad road to destruction because they do not know what repentance is. And I'm here today to share what repentance is so that you can have that cleared up. Uh, it, It definitely will be a great episode. I... I'm looking forward to sharing repentance with, uh, I guess, the listeners or the unbelievers or whoever's listening. And hopefully by the end of this, you will have prayed for repentance. And at at some point, it may be today, tomorrow, a month, a year from now, you will be granted godly sorrow of repentance. And you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So starting out, definitely, what is repentance? Well, most believe it means to change your mind or to turn, and it does not mean this at all. Uh, let's, let's just start off with that. It does not mean to change your mind, and it does not mean to turn, or people say to turn away from sin. No, it, it doesn't mean that. That is not what it means. I remember there was this one preacher, and uh, let's see if I can uh, get the get the thing right. And he said, repentance is a is a change of mind. It's a, a turning away from sin. 
Yes, yes, it's more than just godly sorrow or uh, mourning over wrongdoing towards the Lord Jesus Christ, but it it's a change of mind, a willing uh, turning away from. If you see it, it's almost as if you're taking a U-turn and you're turning around from your sin and toward God. Yeah, and that, that's basically what he told me, what he told many other people. And it's because he has never come to the repentance of grief and godly sorrow, which is found in Scripture. Repentance does not mean to turn away from sin or to turn. It means grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing or action. It does not mean to change your mind at all. In some contexts, it does mean to change, but it never means to change your mind or to turn. No. And the word that you're looking for to mean change of mind or to turn is called convert. That is the word that you're looking for. Uh, when someone is a Satanist and they can they turn away from their wicked practices of witchcraft and abomination and necromancy and all sorts of magic practices, uh, that is converting from Satanism to, let's say that they actually get saved, to Christianity. That is that is conversion. But the grief that they had after hearing the law from someone or from reading the word of God that condemned their abominable practices and the humble state that they were in after hearing the law and recognizing their guilty stance before holy God, that is the grief and godly sorrow of repentance. And uh, we're going to go to our first verse here. The first of many. <clears throat> it's uh it's in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter seven. And I'm gonna start in verse nine. Now I rejoice, and this is Paul here. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrow to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So there are many times where people actually do come to repentance, but their repentance is not directed toward God, who they whom they've offended. Um, let's say somebody is in the Islamic faith, for example, and they come to repentance. And when after they come to repentance, it's not directed toward God, it's directed toward themselves. It's a worldly type of repentance. Um, someone struggles with some type of sin that they do behind closed doors or uh, in the dark or whatever, uh, whatever terminology you want to use, and they're scared that it may get out. That's a worldly sorrow. That isn't grief and godly sorrow. Uh, the, that is of repentance. That is a worldly sorrow that worketh death. And so many people have that worldly sorrow that when they sin, they don't want it to get out. Um, a great example would be a young woman who has sexual intercourse outside of marriage and she conceives and she ends up having an abortion because the worldly sorrow was just too much of her, too much for her. Um, and out of, out of fear, she murders the child. That's a great example of that. Um, 
uh, just to get the point across that repentance means grief and godly sorrow. It never means to change your mind. It never means to turn. It never means to turn away from sin. It, it never means any of those things. It is grief and godly sorrow. And I want to give you some examples of repentance in Scripture. Uh, but before I do that, I also want to explain sackcloth and ashes because that's what you're going to see a lot during this time. And when we go through all of these verses, that is. And so sackcloth and ashes were a practice that was definitely widespread within the Old Testament. Many people were seen renting their garments and um, putting on dust and sitting in sackcloth and ashes after they had come to repentance of their sin. Not because they turned away from their sin, but because they mourned because of the sin that they had committed in the morning that they had uh, offended God through their actions. It's very rare that we see that today. It's uh, it's contrasted with the woman who is homeless, who is sitting and she's crying because she recognizes her humble state before the Lord. And Miss America, who's crying and saying, oh, thank you, thank you. And everybody's guilty of this and of idolatry because they're worshiping her. And those are foolish tears as compared to tears of grief and godly sorrow. Um, a great example I learned not too long ago from a great teacher. But um, <clears throat> it's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And we'll see that all of these people throughout Scripture sat in sackcloth and ashes because they had godly sorrow of wrongdoing. So I definitely like to go to Ezekiel chapter 27. That's definitely where I'd like to start. Ezekiel is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And there's definitely a great example of repentance here, for sure. Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 30. And shall cause their voice to be heard against thee, and shall cry bitterly, and shall cast up dust upon their heads. They shall wallow themselves in the ashes. So it's clearly an example of the godly grief and godly sorrow of repentance. Um, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Another example is in Luke chapter 10, the gospel. Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. What? What do you mean, repented? Sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Well, the Bible defines repentance there, sitting in, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, having grief and godly sorrow of your wrongdoing. It's right there. We read that as to turn, had a great while ago turned away from sin, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. No, 
No, that, that doesn't that doesn't work. Because it defines it afterward, which is grief and godly sorrow, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Another one is in Job. No, I read all that stuff that happened to Job. Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, verses 5 through 6. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Job doesn't doesn't even care for himself because he knows how wicked he is. And so he repents, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He has come to grief and godly sorrow of his wrongdoing before holy God, and he is sitting in sackcloth and ashes. You know, so often we hear, you, you, you need to love yourself. You Self-love is the best love. But that, that no, no, that no, that, that isn't true. You don't need to love yourself or your life. You should hate yourself and you should hate what you are and you should look to God to change you. Our world is is what we use to understand the way that we should see ourselves. Uh, you should love yourself. You should. Uh, what's that one Christina Aguilera song? I'm beautiful no matter what they say. That's not true. It's not true. She's a worldly woman. That's a that's a worldly woman. She's not she's no Christian. She doesn't understand the truth of the word of God. And she probably has never even attempted to because she cares more about fame and riches and glory and the idolatry of man. So you can't look to the world for understanding of biblical principles and the truth, because, again, the word of God is the truth. Nothing else within the world is the truth. So don't love yourself. Uh, there was this one guy who told me uh, after I had this kind of exhibitionist moment, he told me that, you know, Mark, you're a good man. And when I was younger and he told me that it, it was horrible because all it did was lift me up in my pride and further blind me and push me away from the narrow gate and the narrow road. Because I said to myself, you know, even though I'm doing these wicked things, it, uh, I'm still a good guy. I'm still good. And of course, the good outweighs the evil, but that just isn't true because obviously at that point I hadn't heard Romans chapter three or there is none righteous, no, not even one that we covered in the previous episode. I hadn't heard that, so I wasn't aware of my guilty stance before holy God. And so I was just um, an ignorant child who reveled in wickedness, attempting to cover it up by uh, niceties, I guess to be as specific as I could be. But it's serious. You you should not love yourself. That is not the first thing that you should think. You should really despise who you are and despise what what you do and how it affects God primarily. Um so I want to go to Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read to verse 2. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Unholy. Lovers of selves. I also want you to turn to John chapter 12, verse 25. The Gospel of John, not 1 John. So John chapter 12, verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Make a six-figure salary, have a trophy wife, uh, have a bunch of little babies, They're all doing well in school, you got a nice car, um, what else? Money, I probably already mentioned that, but you, you, you're enjoying your life. You go golfing all the time. Uh, you raise money and awareness for cancer research or something like that. Well respected in your community, which is sin because respecting persons is sin. Uh, all sorts of things. You got titles. You're a doctor or something like that. I mean, you, you got it. Uh, what, what in the world terms? You got it going on. You should watch out. You really should watch out because that is dangerous. You should not love your life, neither the life that you are living. You should rather hate your life and recognize that it is Christ who is doing all of the good through you and that there is none righteous. No, not one. No, not one. Unholy that we just read in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. But people always tell you that you should love yourself. Self-love, self-care, self-esteem. You know what that's called? It's called pride. And that ruins many young people. Many young people, many adults, many people who have been lifted up in their pride and now they're incapable of having any type of correction whatsoever because, of course, they can't be wrong. And so they love themselves enough and it's, it's, it's terrible. It enslaves these people. Um... At the end of the day, do not love yourself. Humble yourself before God so that he can change you. Not so that you can make a change in the world. Because again, dead men can't shine. There is no light. People read uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 out of context. And they say, you know, I'm just going to light up the world for Jesus. You, you don't do anything for him because he's God. God does does things for you. I mean, that's really simple, but <laughs> he does do, he does so many things through you and for you, but he does not need you for anything. It's simple. He does whatever he pleases and as, as is written in the Psalm, but I want to give more examples of repentance. So let's go to Genesis first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37. Okay, Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. Of course, the word repentance isn't mentioned in that verse in Genesis speaking about Jacob, but we clearly see that it's the grief and godly sorrow of repentance. Another example is in Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 6. 
And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his faith before before upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. They came to grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing. Another example is in Second Samuel. Just a few uh, books over, First Samuel, Second Samuel. So Second Samuel. Chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. All of the people, including the King David, came to grief and godly sorrow and mourned because of sackcloth. And it's clear as given from the example from sackcloth and ashes that they were mourning over the loss of Jonathan and uh, the then King Saul. Another example is in Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 19. Okay, whoops, I went a little too far. So Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 19. And this is after Tamar was raped by her brother. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of, div of divers, goodness, of divers colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Even though she was assaulted, she knew that she had committed a sin before holy God, and she came to grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing. She came to repentance. And a final one I give is in Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 18 through 19. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the, the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. The things that have been done in earlier years grieved, and after looking at what had happened, Grief and godly sorrow was was prevalent. You can't you can't take these verses out of context and um attempt to apply them to turning away from sin or changing your mind about something. These things that that you've done as a child, these horrible things or these things that you did as a teenager, 
uh, during high school or middle school or whatever, bullying someone, isolation, persecution, blasphemy, uh, sexual immorality. These things should grieve you. They should grieve you and you should come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance over your wrongdoing. Because there is there is no... You, you can't just excuse it away and say that, well, I made a few mistakes and now I'm a better person. I don't know. There is none righteous, no, not even one. We're going to hear that verse quite a lot. So many people, they'll ask... Uh, so how do I how do people come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance? That's a great question. Many people wonder how do we share the message of truth with unbelievers? Are we supposed to uh you know <laughs> Jesus loves you? I mean you hear that all the time. They use the pagan heart symbol when Jesus loves you in the middle or uh they try to send them text messages like you know God loves you and uh I remember when I was into sports, I was into the NBA and watching the NBA. I would always watch the highlights on YouTube and there would always be somebody in the comments who would say, Jesus loves you if you accept Jesus as your Lord and said, I'd be like, and then it'd have about 11 likes or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. And, you know, in my ignorance, I said that, but um, I remember Eventually, as sanctification was taking process in my life, and I started to lose interest in the NBA because it was just so worldly, and all of the satanic and pagan signs that most of the players make. Uh, You'll see LeBron James, for example, he'll put two um, sixes over his eyes, which is the eye of a chooses, and it symbolizes the 666. I I honestly have no, um, no doubt in my mind that he's... Uh, what do you what do you say? Sold his soul to get to where he's at. It definitely does not um behoove me in any way to to think otherwise. And many of those people do it. I could name NBA players, but that's pointless because it doesn't matter at the end of the day. So yeah, I mean, people say Jesus loves you all the time, or God loves you, and God loves you just as you are. But there's none righteous, no, not one, and God will judge that which is wicked. If you reject Christ and his gospel, you will um, suffer for all of eternity in the lake of fire. And that is the truth of the word of God. That is, in my opinion, obviously any person with uh, in their naturalness, for example, would say, you know, God is loving, so he's not going to allow anybody to go to hell, which is heretical and ridiculous, really, because it just spits in the face of Jesus Christ. And says, you're not you're not that important. God is the one who's important. At least the God I've made in my head. And so people think that loving love and giving God's love and all of that is how we share the gospel. But that isn't true. We give the law to unbelievers and that is what we are called to do. I want you to turn to Galatians, New Testament. It's an epistle. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So we give people the law. We give an unbeliever the law. We give a 
<clears throat> somebody who's stuck in a works righteousness, religion, the law. We give an atheist the law. That's that's what we give them. We don't tell them that God loves them. God loving someone doesn't really matter. I'm pretty sure people think that the person who's abusing them each and every single day loves them deep down. And it doesn't really change the fact that they're still abusing them. So, I mean, what does it matter for uh, whoever Jesus, whoever this Jesus guy is to love them too? Um, let's also go to Psalm 19. Old Testament. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So somebody isn't uh, the brightest or as someone is having trouble in terms of learning things or they may have a learning disability or something or something to that effect. The word of God is perfect in converting the soul. And this is the word you're looking for in terms of change of mind or turning away from sin. A person can only do this with the knowledge of the word of God. The word of God is the only way that a person can be converted. It isn't about telling them that Jesus loves you. That isn't that isn't going to help them at all. No one no one cares about the, the cross at all. Giving Christ to other people is vain. It's vanity. It's pointless. I'm not going to go to someone who is in a club and say, you know, Jesus loves you. Or uh, the songs playing in the background is like, hey, Jesus loves you. Because you have to speak because the music is loud. Um, and yeah, they're going to be like, oh, wow, that's so cool. No, they're not going to say that. They're just going to think I'm a lunatic. Obviously, because it's it, it's the wrong setting and you shouldn't be in a club in the first place. But in addition to that, nobody cares about Christ. Let's go to 1 Corinthians so we can further prove this point of the pointless pointlessness of attempting to give an unbeliever Christ crucified before giving them the law. It's absolutely pointless. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us us which are saved, it is the power of God. So since I, I came to salvation or God saved me, the, the cross means everything. Not the little trinket that's around people's necks that are, that are ungodly symbols, but rather the cross itself and what the cross means, means the world to me because without the cross, I would be on my way to hell, perishing and reveling in wickedness with no reprieve, waiting an inevitable end to all joy or all hope or all peace and suffering for all of eternity with no help no hope of ever getting out of such a of, of the probably the worst situation imaginable burning for all of eternity in a perfect judgment but because of Christ crucified I no longer have to worry about that because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so yeah, to me and to other people who have come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance and have been saved by the grace of God, the cross means everything. But to those who are atheists and those who deny God's existence and those who are reveling in sin, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to hear that. 
nobody like nobody cares about Christ. So you don't give them the the cure to the terminal illness until you tell them that they are terminally ill. In fact, sin is so bad, it not only kills you once, it's going to kill you a second time. You're going to go to the lake of fire, which is the second death. That's how horrible sin is. It's a terrible disease. And everyone has it, and they're going to die. And then they're going to die again. Well, they only have to die one time, and then they can have the uh, the licensed prescription from the Lord Jesus Christ of eternal life, which will only which will help them to only die once. Because, of course, they have to die because the wages of sin is death, as said in Romans. But we don't have to die eternally. That's why it's called eternal life. Bottom line, don't don't ever attempt to share the message of truth by saying God loves you or Jesus is, is love or um, John 3.16. That's the only thing you give them. I mean, you didn't, no repentance, no... No sin, no nothing. You just, it's just, it, it, I mean, any person who's who's practiced mathematics before knows that the equation doesn't work unless it's equal on both sides and you have all parts of the equation and it's completely solved. I mean, if you have like one number, that that isn't going to do anything. So you have to give them the entire the entire context of everything that's going on with them in order to first in order to know that they are sinners they must be given the law to know that they are guilty before holy god and that they've transgressed his law and without that they're they're never going to know i mean many many mormons many catholics and many jehovah's witnesses believe that they are of christ when they're not they aren't because they are following works righteousness and that is not of they are not of Christ they have many different doctrines which are antithetical to the gospel of Christ and at the end of the day all three of the ones that I've mentioned are attempting to justify themselves before God instead of trusting in Christ alone for his um and that's not grace and grace alone and faith alone but trusting in Christ alone for salvation forsaking any other effort to save themselves and God, he does not give his grace to the proud at all. Now, we can turn to James chapter chapter 4. This is also in the New Testament. James chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So when people might say that, you know, repentance isn't necessary for salvation, it's because they've never come to the grief and godly sorrow of repentance for wrongdoing before holy God. They've never come to it, so they deny it. Because for them to acknowledge that means that they they never they never were a Christian, they never were of Christ, and they were terrors among the weak. And that's impossible for somebody I mean, what's man's cardinal sin or first sin? There is no such thing as an adjective before sin, because even like uh, I don't know some something as heinous as pedophilia is is the same in the eyes of God as lying, because again it's sin. There is no branch of sin. It's only sin in the eyes of God, and it only takes one lie to go to hell. It only takes one lie, and you're a liar. So that's why people deny 
grief and godly sorrow of repentance and many many prominent teachers um just to name a few like Billy Graham or John MacArthur or uh Charles Stanley for example Joel Osteen Joseph Prince they'll say that you know I mean their doctrines are vastly different all uh, I think five of the men that I mentioned they'll all say that it's different things um but all of them all agree that repentance means to turn away from sin or to change your mind which is false and all of them are false preachers because of that because they've never come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance and their terrors among the weak uh, another verse is in jeremiah chapter 8 verse 6 back in the old testament jeremiah <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into battle. And so there's a, a great example of people. Um, I think I think the best example of that is uh, or likening that to that verse to anything is the sinner's prayer. When Joel comes on your screen and he says, would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? Yeah, and I already gave the example in one of the earlier episodes. But when he invites you to say the sinner's prayer, which he got from Billy Graham, you can say the sinner's prayer uh, in the same vein as just being on the couch and not having anything else and be like, oh, OK, I guess I'm a Christian now. Now, let's see what time I can go to the strip or something like that. I mean, they're not even there's no repentance. There's no grief. There's no humbleness. It, it's you're just sitting upright. I mean, you you haven't heard the law from Joel Osteen. You've heard your best life now, which is lover of selves that we just covered not too long, a few a couple of minutes ago. And that that's not the law. I mean, that you don't even know that you're a sinner at that point. Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. What does I repent of my sins mean? To turn away from your sin? I mean, it's not even grief and godly sorrow. He's not in a state of repentance when he's watching that from her, from his couch. She's not in a state of repentance when she's driving to um, meet her her uh, husband's family or something like that. And that neither one of those people are. Um, but people will say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I pray the sinner's prayer. You can't trust in a prayer and be saved. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and you are saved after being granted repentance from the Lord Jesus Christ and from God. That is that is salvation. But so many people they just, they say that oh you know I'm I'm humble I'm very humble and no <laughs> it's 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 antithetical. It's like I'm a humble humble man. No, none righteous. No, not one. No, no. There is not a single person that has prayed the sinner's prayer is saved. Not a single person who will pray the sinner's prayer will be saved. That prayer has sent more people to hell than anything on the face of this planet to echo the words of false preacher Paul Washer. Now, the repentance of God. Does God repent? Has God repented? Uh, does Has God turned away from his sin? <laughs> has God changed his mind? about sin that he was going to commit well um, god has repented 
<clears throat> but as we spent about, uh, I'd say about 40 or so minutes going over repentance, God God has not changed his mind. Uh, we said that God is omniscient, that God is omnipresent, and that God is omnipotent. All power, He everything is in his presence, and that he is all-knowing. So he cannot err. And to say that he could err is, is heretical. Meaning that it, it just it's untrue and it's based on it's based on a lie. It's antithetical to what is in the word of God and what the word of God testifies uh to us about God as we know him. Excuse me, or as much as we can know him, because of course he's infinite. So no, God does not change his mind and he does not turn from sin. That, that's that's the one thing that I want to get across is um, I remember I read this one lexicon or this one Bible dictionary, and it said that, you know, God repented of he turned away from this sin that he was going to unleash upon these people. And of course, that's heresy. So I, I immediately stopped reading that that book. And this was before I even came to grief and godly sorrow of repentance. Um, uh, to give some examples, we're going to obviously give examples of God and repentance uh, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 6. The first book of the Bible, Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 6. If I could get there. These pages are kind of thin. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Well, did God change his mind about making man on the earth? No, he said that man was good. And, I mean, did he say, well, I remember this uh, this one teacher, he said, he's kind of like, oopsie daisy, I shouldn't have, <laughs> I shouldn't have made man or something. Uh, no, because, of course not, because he's God. He He knew that man would sin. And so that's why we see that God, after... Adam and Eve had chosen against him or had disobeyed him. He uh, he made clothes for them. And the animal sacrifice there points to the cross. And um, God didn't, he didn't repent in terms of turning away from sin or changing his mind. But rather God repented in that it grieved him at his heart of the wickedness that man was unleashing upon the earth. That is the repentance that God suffered at that point uh we could also go to judges this is also in the old testament judges chapter 2 verse 18 old testament it's right beside joshua okay so chapter 2 verse 18 And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. So it grieved God. It didn't, he, you couldn't even interpret that as changing his mind. Uh, we can attempt here just for, I don't know, uh, I wouldn't say kicks or giggles. I would just say for people who still believe that Grief and godly sorrow is not repentance and that it means to turn or to change your mind. 
for it turned the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them, or let's try for it changed the mind of the Lord. No, no, neither one of them. No, it it doesn't really fit. It doesn't fit there because it doesn't mean to change your mind or to turn away from sin. Uh, another great example is Jonah chapter three. Now this is this is probably one of the best ones. Jonah is <clears throat> it's also in the Old Testament. Apologize, there's like something in my throat. So Jonah chapter three verses nine through ten. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, at first glance, oh my goodness, at first glance, reading this out of context, one may assume that the entire argument for repentance, meaning to turn or change your mind, that I mean, that that's basically the basis for the argument there. I mean, those verses read out of context definitely, definitely can mean that. Definitely. I mean, just looking, looking at them out of context, if, if you were to say that it means to turn, repentance means to turn or to change your mind, it could definitely mean that out of context. But uh, let's try to put turn in that context. Who can tell if God will turn and turn and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? It's completely repetitive and redundant. Well, even that, <laughs> it's, a, it's almost a conundrum that I just unleashed, but it's re- it's repetitive and nonsensical. There's no point in putting turn three times when it doesn't even mean turn to begin with. Because it means that God will repent, meaning he will come to grief and godly sorrow and turn away from his fierce anger that the people do not perish. And we see in verse 10 that the people did turn away from their sin. That they turned away from their sin, not that they repented of their sin, because they first repented and then they turned away from their sin. Works meet for repentance. And God repented of the evil, in verse 10, that he said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So God grieved over the the judgment that he was going to pass upon those people that were practicing wicked abominations in his sight. And after doing that, he repented of the evil or the judgment that he was going to unleash upon them, and he did not do it. It didn't mean that, well, you know, I think that now that since they've done no. No, God grieved of the of the judgment that he was going to unleash upon them. To say that God was going to commit evil is is heresy. And it also, you miss the point of the entire context of the verses. Because if we go back up to verse 8, it says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. With what? With sackcloth, just like we were speaking about earlier, sackcloth and ashes, and cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. 
Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So there, clearly, when we read the verse all the way in context, it shows that the people had to come to grief and godly sorrow first of sackcloth and ashes, as, as seen in sackcloth and ashes, and then they turned from their evil. So the works meet for repentance, the works of repentance. You Yes, you will turn away from sin once you've come to grief and godly sorrow. I don't think someone who was a murderer, um, after they've come to grief and godly sorrow, of repentance after they see thou shall not kill in Exodus, I don't think they're going to go and just murder someone and have no no grief and godly sorrow over it. I mean, it's definitely a strange example, but um, it is an extreme example that could trigger something within you. Because that, mur- that murderer is no longer a murderer. They're an adopted son or daughter of Christ. And they will no longer associate with a lifestyle of sin because that now they realize their wickedness. It's the same principle of loving yourself versus hating uh, what you are and crying to God to change you and to save you from your wickedness, save you from yourself primarily, because you're the one who's going to get yourself in hell. No one else. Uh, a final example, and Jonah, I would, I would definitely, if you're still, if you still want to know uh, about the grief and godly sorrow of repentance, I would encourage you to read the entirety of Jonah chapter three because uh, repentance. That's probably one of the greatest passages in Scripture of repentance because uh, the king of Nineveh does it. Nineveh itself does it. Uh, the people. Uh, I guess, haggle with Jonah about what they need to do. And Jonah gives them the word of God that he received because he's a prophet. And he's not Joseph Smith. And he shares the word of God with them and they repent and God does not judge them. Because they they repented and then they turned away from their wicked ways. So the final example of repentance of God that I want to give is in Ezekiel chapter 24. And so Ezekiel is also still in the Old Testament, a prophet. Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 13, verses 13 through 14, and I'll end at verse 14, beginning in verse 13. And thy filthiness is lewdness, because I have purged thee, and thou was not purged. Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness any more, till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not go back, neither will I spare, neither will I repent, according to thy ways. And according to thy doings shall thee judge thee, saith the Lord God. So this also gives context to the passage that we just read from Jonah chapter 3 and that God is judging them for their wickedness. They were obviously in in this passage in Ezekiel engaging in lewd practices and he he was going to judge them and he was not going to turn away from the judgment that he was going to do. It says neither will I repent, saith the Lord. 
So he's not going to grieve over the judgment that he will pass because it is righteous judgment. It's the same thing as saying, well, no one can go to hell. No, God must judge that which is wicked because he is the standard for all good. And that's something that a lot of people cannot reconcile. They simply can't. And the reason why they can't reconcile it is not only because they haven't come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance, but also because they, they have made their own falsification of God in their mind. They do not know the Christian God of the Bible, but rather they know the Jesus that they've made. They know the God that they've made, and they know the Holy Spirit that speaks to them, speaks to them outside of Scripture. So, I mean, many people have different versions of Christ. They don't have the Christ of the, of the, of the Word of God who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. This, this isn't the same Jesus that they're worshiping, and uh, it's it's unfortunate. I think to wrap up this part, God is grieved in his heart of the evil that man does, but he doesn't change his mind. And uh, we've clearly stated that he is the standard for all good. So to say that God could sin is not po possible. It pretty much destroys omniscience and um, also destroys the fact that he's God and he, he isn't capable of yeah, I mean, it's it's not possible. That is a dangerous heresy. It's also blasphemy to say such a thing. But of course, many people still believe it because I guess those doctors who wrote that in the lexicon and the Bible dictionary that I was speaking of earlier, they thought that God was capable of sin and that he repented. He turned away from the sin that he knew. And um, wow, it's just you get to a point where they spent 12 years of their lives pursuing a um a a, doc, a doctorate in theology but they they don't even understand repentance which precedes belief in the Lord Jesus Christ it's, it's wow that is that is that really is something um repentance means grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing, I would encourage all of you to pray to receive repentance because God does not give grace to the proud of heart. He does not. Uh, I want to go to Second Peter to close this part. Second Peter chapter 3. And this is in the New Testament. It's obviously Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. First letter, second letter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you want to to know that you're saved, to know that you're you have salvation, to know that God God loves you or um that that when you die or that if you go to sleep tonight or if you take a nap in the middle of the day or you get into a car accident or there's an explosion at your job or uh, you know uh, the many different types of catastrophe mindsets that people live with underlying in their mind or in the back of their mind because they don't know I pray that you would be granted repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for repentance. If you're a 
um, air air quotations, Christian, and many of the things that I've brought, at at least in this part of this episode, have alarmed you, uh, and you feel unnerved by the verses that we've gone through, don't run away from that feeling. Don't run away from it. Pray for God to give you repentance so that you can come to the grief and godly sorrow of repentance and so that you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation because he is the only person that you can trust. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust some other mediator. You have to trust him alone. You can't trust the church, a person, your mom, your dad. No no one. No one. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that you trust in. Trust in him alone to save you. That's what I would would say to any person who wants to know how to receive repentance. Pray for it. That is what you must do. This is just a note that the verse given about an hour into the episode from Isaiah is not Isaiah chapter 23. Uh, It is Isaiah chapter 28 verses 10 through 13. I apologize for making that error. Um, This is the verse that for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So uh, just when you hear that part later on in the episode, go to Isaiah chapter 28 and not Isaiah chapter 23, as I said in the episode earlier. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying listening to the episode. Now that we've covered repentance, and now that we have the second piece of the puzzle, there are two pieces of the puzzle to salvation. Repentance is necessary for salvation, and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is also necessary for salvation. This is how men are saved. They are humbled before the Lord Jesus Christ. They recognize their sinful state before God, and they pray to be saved and it's not calling or speak it's not speaking the name of the lord it's calling upon the name of the lord in desperation knowing that that at any given moment they could die and be damned to hell for all of eternity because that's already where where they're headed and so in desperation they cry out to the lord to be saved after hearing the message of truth and this is this is just i mean so many people believe that they're they're going to heaven. They think they keep the law. They think that they go to church. Uh, they they tithe. They give money. Uh, they kiss babies. They raise money for cancer awareness. Uh, they walk every year for breast cancer awareness. They do all manner of things. They're good. They don't run in. They don't run out on their wife. They they're good parents. They buy things for people. They always give to the person who's on the corner. I mean, they they just make up so many different things in their minds, and they don't understand sin. They don't understand their sinful state before holy God, and they they think that they can continue to play their wicked video games or engage in sexual immorality, and God knows their heart. I said it once, and I'll say it again. God knows your heart. He knows that you are... You are away from him. You you don't care about him, that you hate him because you do not do the things that he does. Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and do not the things that he, he says? Why? 
And so many people are confused. Repentance is necessary for salvation. It does not mean to turn or to turn away from sin or to change your mind. That's conversion. It means grief and godly sorrow, and it is only given by God. The reason why salvation is a God-given act is because God gives people repent, gives man repentance, and God saves people by His grace. It has nothing to do with random, random Tommy coming to um, coming and realizing, oh, okay, I guess I got to get saved now. So now I keep the law. No, no, Tommy falls on his on his knees after hearing the law. And he comes to grief and godly sorrow, crying his heart out, recognizing his sinful state before holy God. And Tommy cries out desperately for the Lord God to save him. Save him by his grace, knowing that there's no other way for him to escape the judgment that is inevitable. Because he has sinned against holy God. That, that is salvation. Salvation isn't the Shawshank Redemption. Salvation is you being humbled before God, pleading, pleading, crying out for him to save you. That's salvation. And you'll be saved for all of eternity because, again, salvation has nothing to do with you. It's God saves you. God saves you. And God can save anyone it doesn't matter what sin that they've created, they've committed. I mean, someone could be engaging in fornication. Someone could be a liar. Someone could be a thief. Someone could be a murderer, an idolater, a swindler. Someone who practices witchcraft, who divination, um, demonic possession. Uh, I mean, all sorts of wicked, wicked things. Practicing wickedness and reveling in it. But if they if they are granted repentance from the Lord Jesus Christ and they believe in Christ alone for salvation, then yeah, they're, they're going to be an adopted son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it, you can't just tell people that, um, that God only saves a certain few or whatever uh, as said in Calvinism or whatnot. Uh, or some other thing that some people are automatically damned because they've uh, they've committed the unpardonable sin or whatever, or they take some of those verses in the Gospels out of context when the Judaizers were persecuting Jesus. But but yeah, I mean it's it's wild that the the broad the the broad path is just so broad, it's so very broad, and so many people are on it and they're deceived. But I want to spend this next half of the episode contrasting and really just reproving and rebuking these wicked versions of salvation that are antithetical to what is in the Word of God. Um, for one, I want to start with works righteousness. Uh, if you're not familiar with works righteousness, you can look up any of the um, the pseudo-Christianity imposter religions such as Catholicism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism. It's it's basically like a corrupt all of those are corruptions of Christianity, if you will. And they believe in works righteousness that you must um hold out until the end in order to be saved. And if you don't, you're going to hell. So basically you're all you're your own you're you're your own savior in that 
in that um tradition, which is horrible. And um obviously we can go to James right after Hebrews, James chapter two. I already gave this verse in another in another episode, but it's a it's a great verse. James chapter two verse ten and it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So, I mean, I personally don't remember the first sin that I committed, but it was probably a lie. Um, after I had lied, I had broke the entire law of God. Thou shalt bear false witness, I broke everything. It's one law with ten compartments, the ten commandments. It's not just, well, you know, I've done like seven out of ten, so... Uh, those three I'm, I'm not guilty of. No, when when you when you come to repentance, you realize that you're not just guilty of idolatry. You're not just guilty of fornication. You're not just guilty of sexual immorality or theft. You're guilty of it all. Because James chapter two, verse 10 has to be fulfilled. And it is fulfilled when you um, the veil is released and you understand the truth of the word of God. Uh, after receiving the Holy Spirit. So uh, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. Oh, this is a this is a wonderful verse. Especially to those who are stuck in legalism. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law. Then Christ is dead in vain. Yeah, it doesn't. It really doesn't get any clearer than that. As a matter of fact, I'll read it again. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You can't trust in your works and be saved. You can't f- keep the law perfectly. You know that's not possible. Every day you lie. Every day, every single day you lie. So you've, you're already guilty again. It's it's like, um, you get. You take a bath and then you get dirty the next day. Everybody gets dirty or musty, they smelly, or <laughs> but um, and they have to take another shower if they have access to water. Of course, not everybody has that. Thinking internationally instead of um, with an ethnocentric mindset, but people have different understandings of things, and um, when when they attempt to reconcile grace which is what we are saved by with uh with the law it, it just isn't reconcilable i mean we've heard ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 9 many times in this uh in this teaching in this episode series and i actually want to go back to that really quickly just so that we have context here with this uh reproving this works righteousness demonic pagan doctrine it has just led so many people to hell they believe that they they're going to go to church every it's like a scholarship to heaven that's horrible for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast and then i want to read verse 10 finally because we have repentance in context for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus unto good works which god hath before ordained that we should walk in them, but the good works aren't what what has they they don't save us. Works meet for repentance or what we do after coming to grief and godly sorrow of repentance, but that is not what saves us. Um, that pretty much wraps up any reprover or brook of 
rebuke of works righteousness, there is nowhere in scripture that says that you keep the law and um and you you then have salvation at the end or what is it? I fought the good fight and uh, I've run the course, I've finished the race, and they take those out of context. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I just I try not to get emotional, but it's, it's crazy to just stand at, the, at the, the path to the narrow path and just say, you know, you're good on the broad path. How about you just get closer to the gates of hell? Absolutely abominable. Uh, there, we could also tackle losing your salvation. <laughs> uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 25. That's definitely the main one that people use. I remember there was this one guy who was very, um, let's just say he was very charged. And he said, verses that people say that you could use to lose it. <laughs> and people use uh, certain verses within scripture to say that you could lose your salvation. But it's completely antithetical to the gospel. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And obviously weeping and gnashing of teeth is referring to hell. Not the uh, the cuss word, but the, the literal place, the eternal damnation hell, that hell that they're talking about. And so they take that verse out of context. And um, uh, there's a there's a specific point I want to make here. So I want you to go to Isaiah. Hold, stay at Matthew chapter 25. Maybe open up another tab if you're on Bible Gateway. And I want you to go to Isaiah because this is an important point I need to make here. Isaiah chapter 23. And I'm going to read um, from, from verse 10 through verse 13. For the precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the test rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they will not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So this is this is probably one of the most important verses that we're going to cover today. I mean, and whenever I say that, it it's just I guess that pride rearing its head because none of the none of the verses in Scripture are more important than the other ones. All of them have the same authority because it's all God's preserved word. But what I mean to say here is that you can't take verses out of context. Verses are to be read precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So you can't just read them out of context. Uh, we're going to get to some more examples of that later on. And so uh, I just wanted to make sure that people understood that right there. And um, they, they say that this verse right here in Matthew chapter 25 says that somebody could lose their salvation, which is not true. And I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1, because the Holy Spirit is the whole reason as to why we know that we have eternal life. If you've come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance, you've received the Holy Spirit by believing the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And as is written in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So there, an earnest is, is basically like a down payment. Uh, many people make down payments on ver various things, and I'm not going to give examples here. But an earnest is basically a down payment. And when you receive the Holy Spirit after being granted repentance from God and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that is that is how you know that you're saved. Now, does the Holy does He speak to you? Yeah, He speaks to you through God's Word, but He's not going to whisper in your ear like many people would say a still small voice, or uh, you know. God spoke to me. That's another example of what we just read in Isaiah. People taking people, or excuse me, t people taking verses out of context, um, as said in, uh, I, I believe that's John chapter ten. I want to say, "My sheep hear my voice." Yeah, you know the you know the the verse. My sheep hear my voice, and they um, and they follow, and they hear me, or they, they follow my, they follow me. And they say that, oh, okay, so that means that God speaks to his children or Jesus speaks to us. And he says, Mark, you know, you got it. No, no, he doesn't do that. He only speaks through his word. Yeah, you can look it up. It's John chapter 10. I just checked. John chapter 10 for the people taking speaking out of context and not reading precept upon precept, line upon line. So, no, we can also go to Romans chapter 8. It's also a great verse to contrast losing your salvation. Romans chapter 8, obviously the first verse, because this is where after Paul has this Romans chapter 7, where he's talking about sin and, and, and just being in a humble state. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Obviously, every person who has been born ever, period, has been imputed with the sin of Adam. And they are condemned to hell. They're condemned to hell. Every last person on the face of this planet is going to hell. Don't ever let anyone else tell you otherwise, because that's what the Word of God says. Every person on this planet is going to hell, and there is not a single person who will not escape hell unless they come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance, and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. It's simple. There is no other way for a person to be saved. That they, Jesus Christ is the only way for them to be saved. And there is no condemnation for those who have trust that Jesus Christ is Savior after being granted repentance from the Lord. And the first, last the last verse that I want to give about losing your salvation, which is and is not biblical. First John chapter five verse thirteen. It's old uh old testament. It's New Testament after Peter. So first John chapter five Verse 13, and he, say, he says it just, he says it's so great here. These things have I written unto you that believe in the, on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. 
that you have it, that you currently possess it. Not that, well, maybe if I'm good enough, I'll get to there. Remember that one, uh, that one song from that uh, unchristian duo, Mary, Mary. They said, Lord, I'm trying to get to heaven someday. Said, I want to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. And, and, and man, to echo another quotation from false preacher Paul Washer, everybody wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. It's true. I mean, so it has some. That statement has some merit to it. Some merit. I mean, even Billy Graham said that repentance is sorrow, but it's like, where does he get it from? Obviously, from the people who precede them. How do these people know the truth, but they themselves have never come to repentance? It's because they get it from other people. It's simple. They don't have any understanding of Scripture. They're reading it in context of the lexicons and concordances that they learned at their seminary colleges. That's where that's where they're reading it from, and that's how they understand it. But at the end of the day, it isn't what is... They're not, they don't have the Holy Spirit, so they can't understand that which is spiritually appraised. It doesn't matter how long they spend in school, because it's spiritually appraised, and only the Holy Spirit can interpret it for them correctly. So no, a, per, a Christian cannot lose his or her salvation after becoming an adopted son or daughter of the, of the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not possible, because God grants people repentance. You don't just repent. God grants repentance. God saves people by his grace. You can have certainty over salvation because your salvation has nothing to do with the sins that you commit, with the actions that you do. It's not that you just have a license to sin after that. Um, I believe that we read, I feel like it was a, an episode ago, it was the verse from the New Testament that said that the grace of God tells us to say no to worldly passions. Exactly. Because we're, we're not going to that this process of sanctification begins after you're saved and it's not going to, uh, to end until of course you're called home to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, you're not probably, you're probably not going to hear, hear well done my good and faithful servant. But again, I'm learning. Um, I know enough to share, uh, the law and to, share how a person can be saved after being granted repentance and what a Christian is supposed to do after they become a Christian. But um, as, as far as specifics on heaven, there's still much more to learn. And I will continue to learn all of my life. There's definitely one, one component of salvation that I definitely wanted to, I wanted to tackle since I, uh, Began this, this episodic series or whatnot. It's definitely purgatory, um, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, because many people, even even the pagans, believe in some type of purgatory. Uh, the Mormons have their version of purgatory. It's called spirit prison. It's very basically the same uh, concept, but that you have to go and suffer after dying. Um, and then eventually you'll get out of that place of suffering, and uh, it's an indefinite amount an indefinite amount of time. You don't know how long you'll be there. You don't know to which degree you'll suffer, and that completely just is antithetical to what is in the Word of God. I mean, 
it, it's it's like saying to Jesus Christ, you're not enough. That's literally what it's saying. You're not enough. Um, it's it's following a doctrine of demons. It It's absolutely disgusting. And how it works within the Catholic Church, at least, is that um, the Catholic Church breaks down sin into two categories, venial sin and mortal sin. So with venial sin, there are lesser sins. Um, I would give examples, but I don't really want to confuse you. But it's lesser sins. That's what I. That's that's what I give you, and then mortal sins are serious sins. As as literal as 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 I can put it. So um, one verse that they'll definitely use to to give people to support this heresy is First Corinthians chapter three. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. Hold on, I have to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And if you read that, I mean, it kind of does imply purgatory there. But then again, what did we just say before we even started diving in with all of these um, heresies and false antithetical doctrines that oppose the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people do not have the Holy Spirit, and so in their naturalness, they form ways of reconciling um, the unknown, because it is unknown to them, because it's spiritually appraised, and they don't understand what is in the Word of God, with um, what they believe to be true, and what they have already established within their churches, within their doctrines, and within their human tradition. So they take this verse out of context, which is actually referring to the judgment seat of Christ, which all believers will <clears throat> one day stand before Christ and give an account of things. And it's not because, oh, well, you know, um, let's say, for example, some random guy is going to stand and he's been, a, he's, He's been saved by the grace of God after being granted repentance. And he's he's there and he says, oh, well, I guess if I did good enough or bad enough, no, it's, that's not what the it's not what the um, the judgment seat of Christ is, that we will be rewarded according to our works for those who are in Christ. But that does not mean that the fire is going to save us because that is that is a doctrine of demons. And you're like, well, dude, I mean, you just keep saying doctrine of demons, doctrine of demons. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean it because of what's said in 1 Timothy. So I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 3. And I think that uh, that if you have anything any background on Catholicism, you'll see a few things here that uh, are explicitly Catholic. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter, latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Uh, I mean, I I don't think that many people could deny the, the priesthood and the, and the nuns um, being mentioned in verse 3 there and forbidding to marry, as well as commanding to abstain from meats, the 
Lenten practice of abstaining from meat on Friday. Uh, God didn't preserve his word just for it to be like, oh, you know, that, that's kind of cool. Eat, drink, and be merry. No, he he saw our, everything in, in present, present to him. And he knew that there would be um, such an imposter and a counterfeit, such as the Roman Catholic Church, which is just one of many, that falsely claims and asserts that it is of Christ when it is really just of the devil because they're following doctrines of demons. And to really clear up venial sin, which is another doctrine of demons, it echoes Satan's first lie in the Bible. So I want you to turn to Galatians, or not Galatians, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall surely not die. Venial sin teaches that a person will not die eternally, but that they will just have to suffer in purgatory until their sins are remitted, which is completely antithetical to what is in the word of God, because all sins are mortal. As we see in Ezekiel chapter 18, well, let me get there, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, where the Lord says, Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So any soul that sins, it's going to die. It doesn't matter if it's a venial sin, which is not real, or a mortal sin, which again is not real because all sins are mortal, because all sins will kill you. There is not a single sin that is just, well, you know, I think God is going to kind of wink at that. No, he must, he must judge that which is wicked. And again, if we go to Romans, Old or New Testament, Romans chapter 6, and we look in, uh, oh my goodness, Romans chapter 6, and we look in verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're going to die if you sin. It, it isn't a matter of this sin is lesser than or this sin is bigger than. That's just rooted in pride if some again if someone lies they're just as were as bad as the pedophile there's no different but difference between the two because they're both sins in the eyes of god the degree to which they suffer in hell will be different but they still will both be in hell it's the same end result so no there is no such thing as purgatory it definitely goes against what's said in second corinthians chapter five Second Corinthians chapter Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight says, "We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, and to be present with the Lord." So that means when we die, we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many people will say that, and they'll be like, you know, when I die, I I have no fear because I I'd be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of them have not come to repentance. So no, no, that isn't true. That isn't true. Something else awaits them. So it's it's layers to this. There's so much deception out there, and uh, we're just really cracking the surface. The blood of Jesus Christ is what enables forgiveness. It isn't. Um, it isn't confessing your sins to a priest or um, repenting, as said in uh, many different Eastern religions. Uh, many. People of the people of the Islamic faith or people who of Islam will say that you need to repent of your sins or 
I remember there was this one religion that said you have to rid yourself of all your desires, but you have to rid yourself of the desire to have all of the desire to rid yourself of all desires. It's a conundrum, like a catch twenty two, if you will. Yeah, yeah, it's just so much. The prince of the air truly has blinded these people, and they're deceiving themselves and deceiving other people. It it's it really is wild. Um, I want to go to Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. No remission. None. Not at all. None. I also want to go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Cleanseth us from all sin. It says the blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that cleanses us from sin. There is no other way to get cleansed of your sin. When you sin as a Christian, uh, we can read... We can read uh, the next three verses in First John. I hope you're still there. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So yes, Christians sin, but we'll, we'll cover that um, in the next episode. But it, it, it definitely is important to... To know that here, especially, that Christ Jesus' blood is the only way that a person is purified from sin. There's no other way possible for you to have repent or for excuse me, not repentance, to have remission of sin apart from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. None. Nothing else is is worth anything in the eyes of God. There is no mention, none, no mention of purgatory in scripture. It is completely unbiblical, and it is antithetical to the gospel of Christ. Those who follow after purgatory, those who believe that the sacrifice, the sacrifice of the mass is going to help their deceased, deceased loved ones who are stuck in a fictitious place called purgatory, must come to repentance and must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone because they will join those deceived deceived relatives in the lake of fire if they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and come to grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing. That's the worst part. I think this is probably um, the the most important part of the episode, at least for uh, if you've gotten this far, because many people believe that Mary, uh, air quotations, helps with salvation and no, I want you to go to First Timothy, and this is this is probably I, w- I want you to pay close attention here. You you may pause it and take a deep breath or hit some stretches or something because this is this is probably the part where many people, and this is not just just Catholics primarily or people of the Islamic faith that are deceived here. Um, this is this is so important. 
No, she does not help. In short, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No, she does not help with salvation. In John chapter 14, verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No, she does not help with salvation. The Mary that we're, we're attempting to refer to, the Mary of, uh, of Catholicism, the Mary of Islam, uh, the Mary that is within, actually prevalent within a lot more uh, Protestant churches if, than, you, than you may realize, is not the same Mary of Scripture. This is not Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. This, again, quotations, Mary is not the same Mary, the mother of Jesus that we find in Scripture. No, they're not the same person. So to break it down, Catholics and many professing Christians also believe that Mary is the mother of God, that she was assumed into heaven, that she was coronated as the queen of heaven, that she is a sinless mediator, that she is the co-redeemer of salvation. It's called co-redemptrix. But none of this is true. None of it. Because Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a sinner. He clicked off the video. She closed the episode. He got offended. That I was I would dare to say such a thing. I understand. I do. I do understand. I really do. Because it's prevalent. And you see it everywhere. It's not just limited to Catholicism or Islam or uh, Protestantism, many, uh, I think once, once you've been granted repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll see it a lot, a lot more, um, in terms of where this, um, pagan goddess with, um, giving birth to a God comes from. But of course this isn't like the end of the episode or anything, because we have to, I, I can't just, you can't just take my word for saying that she's not a sinner. We must go to the verses in scripture. They clearly state that Mary, the mother of Jesus, at least, was a sinner. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. I mean, Mark, what, that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, it, it's not even relevant. It's just a verse out of context. Aren't you doing the line upon line? Absolutely, I am. So I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 12. The law. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. 
and the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. To give context of the verse that we read in Luke chapter 2 before we uh, defined or at, le at least gave the reasoning as to why Mary, the mother of Jesus, presented a sacrifice of two turtle doves, we must, of course, recognize that Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, her spouse, were of, they, they came from humble beginnings, so they couldn't even afford um, the traditional sacrifice of the lamb. But they add another adequate sacrifice was two turtle doves, and that's what she provided in order to be purified from um, her monthly bleeding after childbirth. Because after at the end of the day, she was still under the law because the Lord Jesus Christ had not died on the cross so that she could be freed from the law and so that she could be justified by faith in him after being granted um, repentance from the Lord. But there's a verse specifically that I want you to uh, look at in Luke chapter 1. And it's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 47. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. A person who is a sinless mediatrix does not need a Savior. A person who was without sin does not need saving from anything. A Savior saves someone from sin. A Savior saves someone from something. Um, we, we see all of these demonic superheroes and comic books, and we say that we uh, ignorantly and ignorantly say and foolishly say that Jesus is a superhero. No, Jesus is not a superhero. Jesus is a Savior. If you want a superhero, you can take the false demonic concept of Superman and, and go and revel in that. But Jesus is a savior. He saves people from sin because he's capable of saving people from sin. And Mary's son, not because she was the mother of God, but Mary's son, her firstborn son, because she had other children, as seen in the first chapter of Matthew, Mary's son was her savior. This is why she says in verse 47, as clear as day, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, because she knew that she was a sinner. This is why she was under the law, and this is why she kept the law, until the law was fulfilled through her Son, Jesus Christ. And you may ask yourself, well, I mean, don't Catholics and don't Christians and don't... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, there are some people uh, of who are who are Islam or, uh, yeah, the ridiculous term, Muslims. I, I can't stand it when people do that. You know, there are some people who are of the Islamic faith who believe that uh, they read Luke chapter 2 and they may skim through Luke cha Leviticus chapter 12 because, again, the word of God isn't that important to them. And they may come to those verses. And uh, I remember there was... Uh, when I was younger, I would recite the Magnificat, which is a Catholic prayer, which basically is uh, taking um, Mary's song of praise that the little is more than just the two verses that we just read. It takes them out of context and 
of course it portrays her as the as the um sinless perpetual median mediator vir- virgin mediatrix that um the catholic church holds to but you i mean you're just asking yourself why can't they see it why can't they see it i mean we we just read through Luke chapter chapter two about her offering the sacrifice of two turtle doves. And then obviously that doesn't make any sense out of context. But when we go to Leviticus chapter 12, it makes perfect sense because it means that she's offered a one for a burnt offering and one for an offering of sin because she had sinned because she was a sinner and she was shut up unto the law until Christ came just as we read in Galatians chapter 3 earlier that the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ how do they not understand that i mean you just keep asking yourself this question why can't they see it why can't they see it why do they why do people still believe and i i mentioned Matthew chapter 1 why do people still believe that she didn't have any children that she was a perpetual virgin when in Matthew chapter 1 Verses 24 through 25, it says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took him and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph did not know his wife sexually until she gave birth to her firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But yes, she had other children. Uh, Many times throughout the Gospels, it's mentioned, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And uh, there's a specific verse where Jesus says that my mother and my brothers and sisters are those who follow up. Yeah, so there's a specific verse in in the Gospels that that show that she had other children and um, that Joseph Joseph did have sexual intercourse with his wife. And there's nothing wrong with that because, of course, God will judge those who are whoremongers and adulterers, but those who are married, the bed is undefiled. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the fact that she had other children other than the, than the Lord Jesus. And... Um, uh, that destroys the whole perpetual virgin uh, doctrine that is a heresy anyway. Um, honestly, you just ask yourself, why can't they see it? And I and I try to get as hyped up as I can. Why can't they see it? Why can't they see it? Because you, you're sitting here reading these verses in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, and you read Luke chapter 2, verses 24, and then go to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, so you can read line upon line, precept upon precept, so you have the understanding and the context. And you still ask yourself, why can't they see it? And it's simple. We can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, and it's, it gives us our answer. It's because they've been blinded by the prince of the air. It's simple. They've been blinded. They are blind to the things of God. They do not know. They do not understand. And even now, if someone's angry because we've gone to these verses after listening to this episode, because they do not want to turn from the idol that they have uh, manifested for themselves and the Mary of Catholicism, the again, the quotations, Mary, um, it's because they are looking to human tradition instead of 
what God has said in his word. And it's the it's Mary of Catholicism and not Mary, the mother of Jesus, as as in clearly revealed in scripture. So Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe it, believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So that, that's how you have to approach people. They are literally blind. They don't understand this. This is why we just read that preaching to them, the preaching of Christ crucified is foolishness to those who perish. It is. People don't care about Jesus dying on a cross. They, they already know that. That's, that's history. But it doesn't mean anything to them until they know that they're sinners and they know that they're headed to hell. And I also want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. And I'm going to begin in verse uh, 7, read to verse 8, and then we're going to get down to verse 13. So Mark chapter 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And then verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered and many such like things do ye. So at the end of the day, the reason why we see this pagan goddess being venerated and worshipped and people are kissing her idolatrous statue and kneeling to pray and praying the rosary and asking for forgiveness from her as if she's God. Honestly, um, I remember one guy, uh, he told me that um, they should really just start calling her the fourth person of the Trinity because, I mean, when you really think about it and look at Catholic doctrine, she genuinely is. Um, the Trinity itself is, is a Catholic doctrine. It isn't um, the doctrine that is in the Bible because the Godhead is the doctrine that is within the Word of God. And that's, uh, of course, I'm not saying something as ridiculous as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit are not three distinct persons in one triune God. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that the Trinity itself is, is a Catholic doctrine. It is not a doctrine that is found in the Word of God. And um, to just give context, these people, they're blinded. They're literally blind. Blinded by the Prince of the Air, and they're fulfilling Scripture because they're holding to human tradition. How did they, how did they even get the perpetual virgin from this? Well, it's simply because people interpreted scripture in their naturalness and um, they, the, the doctrines of the Catholic Church were founded on pagan ideals and pagan notions. And so you see that pagan ideal of a God giving birth to another God mirrored in the, um, the Catholic doctrines. And so when people, people, uh, they, they worship and they pray to Mary and pray to other mediators, they are guilty of the sin of idolatry, plain and simple. When people say that Mary, quote-unquote Mary, ascended to heaven just like the Lord Jesus Christ, they are guilty of the sin of blasphemy because there is absolutely no way possible any person could ascend to heaven just as in the same manner that Christ did. In fact, when I was researching this, I got this quote from Catholicism.org, and um, you, you know you have to cite your sources or whatnot. So you can go to Catholicism.org and type in Mary Co-Redemptrix, and I believe that this was uh, towards the end of the article. 
But uh, it says, and I quote, Jesus is dead and it is Mary all alone whose sufferings bring symbolically bring forth the church from her pierced immaculate heart. We could just as easily call Mary simply redemptrix as co-redemptrix. So truly, they they believe that Mary is is uh, is really just on the same level as God, and um, you know though you you ask any given devout Roman Catholic if they worship Mary, and they'll say no, no, no. They venerate her, and it's really just a play on words because if you look at the textbook definition of venerate, it means to worship. So they're yeah, it's like a euphemism, if you will, that they use to um, justify their idolatry instead of reading the word of God to test the veracity of the church's teachings. As we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where the Berean Jews examine the scriptures daily in order to test the veracity of the Apostle Paul's teaching. Because, of course, as is said in Psalm 118, verse 8, which is in the middle, very middle of the word of God, it's better to trust God than to trust man. And I choose to trust God than to trust uh, any other person, not even myself. I mean, at, at some point I thought that God was just, when I was much younger, this was before I was like a teenager or whatever, that God was just going to let everybody into heaven. But, excuse me, God's not Oprah, so he's not going to do that. More on her later. Um, at the end of the day, these these uh, people are are fulfilling scripture. Roman Catholicism has more in common with Islam than it does with biblical Christianity. Uh, many people don't even realize that um, the the Quran has a whole chapter dedicated to Mary. Um, the Quran, or excuse me, the the Islam, the people of the Islamic faith practice prayer, prayer breeds. I believe they're called like Masbaha, uh, Masaba, and they use those to pray. Um, I'm actually not sure who they pray to, but uh, they use those to pray. People are unaware of the pilgrimages and trips that people make to Fatima. Fatima is the name of Muhammad's daughter. And so many, many Islamic people go along with Catholics to um, pray to Mary. Uh, people say, well, how do you reconcile the apparitions of Mary, that's, those are, those are demons that are appearing to those people, um, seducing spirits. They do not test the spirits to see if they be of God. They are just believing that to be of Mary. Um, most of the apparitions say that if you would convert to my immaculate heart, as we just mentioned in this quotation from Catholicism.org, that you would, you would be saved. And I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. It's almost as if it's a, can't see the forest from the trees type deal, right? If you're familiar with that saying, um, that people don't see the commonalities between um, the Islamic women wearing the head coverings as, and, and the same thing with the nuns. And um, they don't see the same thing with the rosary and the masaba. Um, they, don't, they don't see these things, uh, but yet they, they continue on and um, uh, now it's starting to move towards a kind of ecumenical Chrislam, or uh, I guess a Catholicism would be a better term for it, because uh, we're just seeing the the scripture being fulfilled, and we're really in the last days. 
And so I pray that if you're a Roman Catholic or if you're um, of the Islamic faith, that you come to grief and godly sorrow of repentance because and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, because you are you are not of Christ. You're not. And uh, many people say that, oh, we're brothers and brethren and sisters in Christ. And no, the only brethren that I have are those who have been granted repentance, griefly, grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Otherwise, you are not my brethren at all. You are simply a passerby that I must share the gospel with. And I deliver the message and I continue on with my life, living humbly before the Lord Jesus Christ, not to be saved, but because I have been saved. Um, and I think that that's a great way to end this episode. Uh, we've we've covered a lot in going over these things, and it definitely, it grieves me now. I mean, it, it does. It grieves me now knowing that all of these, uh, how many are there, like 1.4 billion Catholics? I think the, the current president is Catholic, so that really just kind of gives you context of uh, putting your faith in politics or whatever, but and he goes to he goes to mass every um, every Sunday I believe. So a faithful Catholic anyway. Um, I I just I pray that all of all of those people who are listeners and they're Roman Catholics or they're of some other works righteousness religion that they would pray for repentance and that they truly would be. Um, children, adopted children of Christ. Uh, I definitely think of, and this is this is part of the closing. I definitely think of that one song that says, "I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God." No, how prideful of you to assume that you're a child of God if you haven't been granted repentance or belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, you're not a child of God. You're prideful and you're guilty in the eyes of God. I'm not a child of God. No no person who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ is a child of God. They're adopted children of God because we have been separated from God through our sin. And it is Christ who reconciles us to God. That is the truth. I know it, it just really is a lot and it's grieving definitely to see how how small um, the, the path is, but I don't really, it's not like, oh, yeah, it isn't that it's more so of a, of a humbleness that, that I can look at, uh, things with and just, and I mean, people always say there go I, but the grace of God, but I mean, I mean, there's nothing else to say other than that, because there go I, but the grace of God, I remember praying the rosary all the time. I remember reciting the same repetitious prayers, not knowing, um, what Christ Jesus had said and um in the gospel about do not repeat in vain as the heathen do, believing that they will be heard for their much much words or their many words, instead pray like this and yeah it's it's a lot going into this, but uh it's I'm grateful that, that people have at least come this far. And I've read these verses along with me and not just taken my opinion for it so that they true, they too can abide in the truth, as said in John chapter 8, and the truth can truly set them free. Because that's all it's about, spreading the message of truth and watching people 
come to grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing and placing their full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ after recognizing their sinful state before holy God. So I'm going to close with Second Peter chapter 3, as I gave before. Oh my. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that truly is my prayer today, that you would come to the grief and godly sorrow of repentance, and that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, knowing that you are saved, and knowing that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to negate Christ's death on the cross for your sin and for the sins of all mankind. Normally I would say grace to you, but I I uh today I'm going to say I I pray that the Lord will grant you repentance and repentance be be to you and I hope that you teach repentance to all those other people, not turning away from sin, not turning, not changing your mind, but grief and godly sorrow of wrongdoing.